This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Did we just witness the Trump tipping point during the bombshell January 6th hearings on Tuesday? Was the surprise testimony of Cassidy Hutchinson the dose of reality that finally wakes America up and starts the indictments rolling? I mean, dear God, let's hope so. We we are coming to you just hours after the January 6th committee shocked the world with a hearing that can only be described as Who would have imagined that the reckless and insane actions of the Trump administration's last days would be so credibly exposed by a once loyal aide? A 25-year-old West Winger who by all accounts was the trusted right hand of former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. A young woman who showed more guts than all the president's men. And from what I can gather, Ms. Hutchinson's testimony is a fateful nail in a whole stack of political coffins. I remember leaning against the doorway and saying, I had an interesting conversation with Rudy, Mark. Sounds like we're going to go to the Capitol. He didn't look up from his phone and said something to the effect of, there's a lot going on, Cass, but I don't know. Things might get real, real bad on January 6th. What Ms. Hutchinson described was the shockingly erratic behavior of Trump high on his own insurrection. When Trump's security chief, Bobby Engel, wouldn't drive him to join the mob storming the Capitol, Trump allegedly reached for the wheel, and when Engel pushed him back, he went for the man's throat. Damn, that is insane. Trump fighting to take control of the president's car like he's a bad guy in an action movie, only he's the president and this is real life? (laughs) I mean, you gotta admit though, fighting your own secret service agent is kind of genius on Trump's part, right? No, because he's hitting the one person who can't hit back. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they can punch back, but then they've got to jump in front of their own punch, you know? (laughs) Just like, take that, no! And what the hell would Trump have done once he got there? I mean, really? Grabbed a fucking pitchfork and stabbed Mike Pence himself? And then, back at the White House, there were hours and hours when the riot raged, Trump stewed, and cooler heads did not prevail. But I did note that both Ivanka and Don Jr. reportedly tried to get their father to call it off. But of course, it didn't help, but good on them anyway. Trump fired back at her today, calling his own daughter by her full name on his social media platform, Truth Social. Ivanka Trump was not involved in looking at or studying election results, he posted. She had long since checked out and was only trying to be respectful to Bill Barr and his position as attorney general. He sucked. Ivanka is or was Trump's favorite child. Although her testimony lasted just 10 seconds, its full impact may be felt for years to come. Hutchinson confirmed that the insurrection was no accident. It had been planned and executed by Rudy Colludi Giuliani and lots of the usual suspects. The committee drew a clear line between Roger Stone and the Oath Keepers, the coup plotters at the Willard Hotel, and Mark Meadows. Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, and the president. But there is so much blame to go around that I'll spare you my blow-by-blow analysis. But paging Pat Cipollone, it's time to sing, buddy. Or like your cowardly cohorts, continue to protect the Teflon Don at your own peril. 
Also shocking was the revelation that Trump knew there were armed and dangerous people all over the mall and yet welcomed them because these were his armed and dangerous people. They're not there to hurt him, but to do his bidding. On that day, he was emphatic. He was irate. Mm -hmm. He was going to go to the Capitol. He was going to join and, and essentially foment a group that was heading that way. Keep, keep in mind that these two critical pieces, totally separate from the salacious, lurid allegations that have been made in, in yesterday's testimony, these two pieces together kind of wipe out the idea that the president didn't know what might happen at the Capitol <laughs> and that he didn't really have any role in trying to egg on violence, directing itself straight up Pennsylvania Avenue to the, the, the head of Congress. Uh, also at his own vice president. Also, he knew the mob was chanting, hang Mike Pence, and stoked their fury when he tweeted. Well, after the rioters had breached the Capitol and Secret Service had rushed Mike Pence into an office, President Trump sent out this tweet, telling his followers that Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our constitution. This is where Miss Hutchinson seemed to have wanted off the Trump train when she looked around and her boss and the president were both engrossed in the mayhem, but not lifting a fucking finger to stop it. Further, because Trump didn't call off the mob sooner, there was fear that the 25th Amendment would be invoked, Hutchinson testified. The only reason Trump made a statement was as cover to protect himself from the threat of his cabinet trying to oust him from power and to preserve his legacy. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack on the United States Capitol. Like all Americans, I am outraged by the violence, lawlessness, and mayhem. I immediately deployed the National Guard and federal law enforcement to secure the building and expel the intruders. America is and must always be a nation of law and order. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defiled the seat of American democracy. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. We have just been through an intense election, and emotions are high. But now tempers must be cooled and calm restored. While Trump gave a speech finally conceding the election on January 7th, he didn't want to say anything negative about his riotous supporters. Instead, he wanted to float the idea of giving them pardons. Maybe we throw them a party. He didn't think that they did anything wrong, said Hutchinson. The person who did something wrong that day was Mike Pence by not standing with him. See him for what he is. He's a development mentally arrested, seriously psychologically disordered human being who has no right to be anywhere near the levers of power. And if anybody is still willing to support him and wants to keep him in power, then we need to be very concerned about those people. And here, 17 months later, we are just now getting the gory details of the most tragic day in Trumpland, where it all finally went off the rails, leaving death and destruction in its wake. And that, my friends, is the legacy Trump will be left with. That and the indelible image of ketchup dripping down the White House dining room wall. 
Stay classy, Mr. President. Majority of the people who have information have come forward and cooperated voluntarily with the committee. Um, there's a relative handful of people who have been um, hiding and ducking and, um, you know, dodging the truth here, but we want everybody to come forward and tell us exactly what they know. I was right when I said that Trump would never agree to the peaceful transfer of power, and I knew he was corrupt. But now it appears he will go down as the most treasonous president in U.S. history, who ran his administration like a fucking mob boss and still does. Liz Cheney warned that witnesses are experiencing threats and intimidation from unnamed Trump toadies. Cassidy Hutchison um, destroyed any pretense that uh, Donald Trump and Mark Meadows and all the president's men didn't understand precisely what was happening on that day. Congressman, good morning. As you know, this was an unscheduled hearing. We learned about it the day before. You all rushed back from your district to hear the testimony from Cassidy Hutchinson. What was the urgency of this hearing? Well, uh, the evidence is of such fundamental importance. We wanted to get it out. Uh, also, um, my colleague, the vice chair of the committee, Liz Cheney, pointed out at the end that we're very troubled about uh, different efforts uh, to influence witnesses. Uh, witness tampering is a crime in the United States, and uh, we want to make sure that uh, we send a very clear message right now that the committee uh, will not tolerate any form of witness tampering or obstruction of justice. But as a result of Hutchinson's testimony, the Secret Service has come forward to say they will now fully cooperate with the January 6th committee and testify under oath. And Alex Holder, the documentary filmmaker who embedded with the Trump family during and after the 2020 election, has had his raw footage subpoenaed and is voluntarily cooperating with the committee. According to Politico, Holder claims that Trump was on an off-the-books call with Putin just minutes after news broke that Putin had dismissed Trump's Hunter Biden allegation. So stay tuned, folks. The best of that probably is yet to come, too. Meanwhile, new details are emerging about a man named Thomas Wyndham. He's the latest federal prosecutor who's been assigned to help lead DOJ's criminal investigation and obtain transcripts from the select committee. He's working under Attorney General Garland's close supervision. New York Times this week describes Wyndham this way as a little known but aggressive prosecutor who has been leading investigators who have been methodically seeking information, for example, about the roles played by some of Trump's top advisors, including Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis and John Eastman with a mandate to go as high up the chain of command as the evidence warrants. So here's a little sidebar. Liz Cheney got in a few good licks during the hearing when she rolled tape on some of her most vocal detractors using statements from Fox News host Kevin McCarthy and Jim Jordan to implicate them in the plot to cover up the coup. Touche, Miss Cheney, touche. And the FBI pulled over John Eastman and took his phone. Footage of agents shaking him down like a common criminal was all over the news Monday. That same night, Tucker Carlson had Eastman on his show to whine and bitch and complain about the illegitimate January 6th commission. I want you to see that they took my property before providing me with the warrant. I'd like to read the warrant. Disgraceful. Wearing his little mask, put your hands up as if Eastman is a threat. He's not. He's a lawyer. 
as you just saw, he's under subpoena from the, speaking of illegitimate, wholly illegitimate Pelosi-Liz Cheney-led January 6th committee. Mr. Eastman joins us tonight. John Eastman, thank you so much for joining us tonight. What exactly did you do wrong to be treated like a dangerous criminal by your government that you pay for? Well, we don't know because the warrant doesn't say. It authorizes them to seize my phone and all the information uh, contained in the phone. According to the Washington Post, Carlson has been running his own one-man rebuttal since the committee started the hearings and has created a sort of bizarro world alternative, giving airtime to conspiracy theorists focused on casting down on the government and interviewing individuals like Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman, who have been a target of the committee's probe. Carlson isn't simply ignoring the hearing. He's holding his own hearings in which he presents unsubstantiated allegations about how the real danger from the riot was the government's response and Antifa. I mean, still with the Antifa bullshit. But Carlson's goal is to offer a counterweight to the House Committee's work and to present fake testimony that casts the investigation as the real threat to Americans. John Eastman, according to Carlson, is just another victim of the committee's witch hunt. Though federal judge David Carter has credibly accused Eastman of obstructing an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States government, and the FBI still has his phone. But call it a witch hunt if you must, Tucker. Do what you will. And it's just another reminder to anyone who didn't vote for Joe Biden to erase your texts and emails every single day. And that is a sincere piece of advice I hope everyone follows. In Tuesday's election, 15 candidates who either denied or questioned the legitimacy of the 2020 election won their Republican primaries. But the big story going into Tuesday's elections was the Democrats had meddled in GOP races hoping to elevate extreme GOP candidates thinking that they'd be easier to defeat in the general election. This is certainly a strategy that could backfire, but leave it to the fucking Democrats to try something stupid. In Illinois, Democrats got their wish and the MAGA fucking wacko state senator Darren Bailey easily won the GOP gubernatorial primary and now faces a steep uphill battle against incumbent Democrat J.B. Pritzker. But in Colorado, the strategy didn't pay off because there were just too many election deniers to choose from. Lauren Boebert and four others just like her won their primaries, which leads me to wonder just what the hell is happening in Colorado. Three election deniers, one in Oklahoma and two in Utah. Do you accept the fact now that the company that you accused of stealing a national election only operated in one county in L.A., in California? One county, one state. No, I'm not prepared to accept that fact. In New York, Kathy Hochul easily won her primary and hopes to be the first woman ever elected governor of the state. A huge turnout for Democrats and lukewarm for Republicans. However, it will be Lee Zeldin, lawyer for Trump during his first impeachment trial, who faces off against Hochul in November. For your information, Zeldin beat Rudy's son, Andrew Giuliani, by 20 points for the GOP nod. And it's still undetermined if the Supreme Court's abortion ban has fired up Democrats to vote in the primaries. But Zeldin is anti-abortion in a state that's currently trying to shore up protection for reproductive rights. So good for Hochul and good for New York. Former president 
President Trump today, he saw shares in his new media company swirl down the toilet uh, when the company had to announce in a regulatory filing that its entire board of directors just got served with federal grand jury subpoenas from SDNY. Uh, from federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. It had previously been known that Trump's new media business venture was being investigated by the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, and by an entity called FINRA, which is a financial industry watchdog. But now apparently it's federal prosecutors as well. So maybe that's a criminal investigation now? And lastly, according to the New York Times, federal prosecutors have begun a grand jury investigation into whether classified White House documents that ended up at Mar-a-Lardo were mishandled. Problem being, Trump may assert that as president, he had the authority to classify and declassify information as he sought fit, which, with certain caveats, is correct. Or he could claim that he didn't know what the boxes contained and that some low-level staffer mistakenly included the documents, which purportedly contained some top-secret data in Trump's move from the White House. Those defenses are difficult to disprove. So why would the Justice Department go to the trouble of opening a criminal case and convening a grand jury unless prosecutors believed they could effectively counter them? More will be revealed, but just the idea that Trump will be fighting something or someone in court for the rest of his life will suffice until he's thrown in jail or exiled to Mar-a-Lago alone with nothing but an ankle bracelet to keep him company. It's reminiscent of the arrogance of another thug mentality, Rick Ross, who talks about walking in the courtroom, sipping on a beverage. I know the judge, so I got a lot of leverage. And now for the main event. Today on Mea Culpa, we welcome back Asha Rangappa, Assistant Dean and Senior Lecturer at Yale University's Jackson School of Global Affairs and a former Associate Dean at Yale Law School. Prior to her current position, Asha served as a special agent in the New York Division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Her work involved assessing threats to national security, to conducting classified investigations on suspected foreign agents and performing undercover work. While in the FBI, Asha gained experience in electronic surveillance, interview and interrogation techniques, firearms and the use of deadly force. She teaches and writes about national security law, information warfare, and propaganda, as well as leadership ethics. Asha has published op-eds in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, amongst others, and has been a legal and national security analyst for CNN, as well as appearing on NPR, BBC, and several other major television networks. She is an editor for Just Security and a contributor for former U.S. attorney Preet Bharara's legal newsletter, Cafe Insider. This is going to be something you don't want to miss, so let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Asha, a remarkable day of testimony the other day, right? I mean, let me ask you this. Did Cassidy Hutchinson just save the republic? I mean, think about it this way. A 25-year-old who called the big lie for what it is, called out Meadows, called out Rudy, called out Flynn, and all of the fucking idiots at the Willard Hotel war room. 
Did she help prove that Trump and his enablers are guilty of seditious conspiracy? I mean, did she prove anything against Trump or was it solely against the others? So, Michael, I'm, I'm not sure if she saved the republic. I think we should set aside that question because I think, what does that mean? Do you mean uh, criminal charges um, in an orange jumpsuit? I think that's what you mean. But there are other ways to save the republic as well. Um, but what I think that Hutchinson did was she definitely put Trump and Meadows in the crosshairs of, of seditious conspiracy, in my opinion. And I think she tipped the scales for incitement to insurrection. And these are two different crimes. Seditious conspiracy requires an agreement to use force to overthrow the government or hinder the execution of any law. And clearly they knew violence was gonna take place. Clearly Trump wanted violence to take place. I would wanna know as an investigator, what, what further evidence can I get that there was active planning and coordination? On the incitement piece, I think the case is much stronger because we now know that Trump knew his crowd was armed. And this is just a game changer, in my opinion, because incitement is speech that is intended to create lawless action that is likely to produce imminent lawless action. He told an armed mob, a mob that he knew was armed, to go to the Capitol and he knew they would follow his orders immediately. And he knew that violence was gonna unfold. And he knew that the purpose was to stop the vote count. To me, this is incitement to insurrection. And I think that I'm, I'm very hopeful that Garland is actively investigating that. Right, so let's just break it down for my listeners because I have the great Asharangapa here, right? Um, we took you away from, you know, mainstream cable news in order <laughs> to bring you here on Maya Culpa. So the seditious conspiracy falls under um, what's it, 18 USC 2384. And exactly as you described it, right? It's two, it's two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States who conspired to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy right war against them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Anybody can go to 18 USC 2384 and read it for yourself. There's a whole slew of problems, because I listen to all of the stations, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, Fox, uh, I'll go to ABC, NBC, CBS, it makes no difference. I like to jump through the channels. And you listen to all of these various different pundits, and they're all excited, right? We're all excited with the prospect of seeing the orange-crusted Mussolini with his hands right behind his back and so on. And they're all talking about con um, seditious conspiracy as one of the charges that Merrick Garland can certainly bring. And... I have to be honest with you, that was the first thing that bothered me because you have to talk about not just the way that the code is written, but what are the elements of seditious conspiracy, right? What's the crime of sedition? And what is it that you have to prove as the Department of Justice? Because you know better than, well, I kind of know it too because I was on the wrong side of that one. When it comes to high profile cases, they they don't want to lose. And you know that if you fight Donald Trump, and again, I was involved in creating this playbook, he's going to fight you tooth and nail, especially when it's his freedom, 
right? Freedom and money, the only two things he truly cares about. So one of the elements for the crime of sedition is the, um, it's either advocating, aiding, teaching, organizing, or printing, um, publishing or circulating written matter that advocates, aids, or teaches the overthrow of the United States government or any state um, by, fe- you know, by fear of uh, violence or threat and so on. What Trump will do, and again, I know this better than all of these folks that are talking about it, he wasn't, he'll tell you he wasn't advocating for it. He was merely expressing an opinion. So a lot of this then will fall under the intent of what he was trying to do. And obviously, we know that Donald Trump lies and lies with impunity. So he would sit there in front of a, um, uh, at a deposition under oath, and he would say, I didn't advocate or aid or teach them or organize them. I was there. I didn't start the rally. I know who did, but it has nothing to do with me. I'm not the one that advocated. Yeah, I told them, hey, let's all go down to the Capitol. But does that rise? I, I wanted. I didn't know what they were going to do. And he can play dumb, which he's so good at doing, especially if that would mean his freedom. My feeling is, under this crime of sedition, it's not Trump who's going to get thrown under the bus, but the other schmucks like me who get thrown under the bus Because that's what Donald Trump does. You have a thought? So sedition, what you just described, uh, the advocating the, the, you know, overthrow of the government is different than seditious conspiracy, which requires the use of force, an agreement to use force. I agree with you. I don't think, you know, sedition has a lot of First Amendment problems. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I, I don't even think the Department of Justice, you know, would go there. Seditious conspiracy, though... Here's what I would say about that. I think it's an uphill battle. I I completely agree with you that they're going to want an airtight case. But here's what we know. We know that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers have been charged with seditious conspiracy. One of the notable things about the Oath Keepers indictment, at least, is that they understand that their marching orders are to occupy the Capitol in order to intimidate lawmakers and pressure Mike Pence to you know, stop the vote count and Mm -hmm. and do all the shenanigans. That is Eastman's plan. Someone has communicated this legal blueprint for the coup to the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. What Hutchinson said yesterday was that when Rudy Giuliani was around, she heard, you know, Proud Boys, Oath Keepers being bandied about. Now, what I would say is, to me, that's, you know, that's smoke and we need to investigate where there's fire because it's, I think that there is some chain of communication going from the Trump inner circle to these militia groups. Did it go all the way up to Trump? I would ask you, I mean, he always keeps an arm's length from these things. Um, I don't know if it will touch him, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I think you know, Roger Stone, you know, Steve Bannon, Giuliani, maybe even Mark Meadows, who, like you said, went to the war room to meet with these guys. I really wouldn't be surprised if it ensnared them. And then the question is, you know, how much participation would Trump have had in that kind of communication if it was in coordination, if it was taking place? And maybe you can talk to that in terms of how he operates. So how he operates, and I've been pretty crystal clear on this, um, throughout this entire podcast, television, and print, 
There's nothing that goes on at the Trump organization that Donald Trump was not involved in. And he ran the White House, the Oval Office, the same exact way that he ran the office at the Trump Tower. Same thing. Everything ran through him. So there's no doubt in my mind that each and every one of these people, Rudy Kaludi, Eastman, Stone, Bannon, the head of the Proud Boys, the head of the Oath Keepers, they're all going to say, well, right there, pointing to who's the guy that told you to do it. They're all going to point to Donald. And what do you think he's going to do? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Everybody, slow down. Show me one piece of paper, just one that has my name on it. Show me one email, one text message to me, right? He learned very well from Roy Cohn never to have your fingerprints on anything. And I bet you that there's no recording, there's no text message, it's all going to be hearsay. And Trump will do exactly what he did to me. Oh, no, they're just trying to they're just trying to shift blame right onto me in order to get a lesser sentence. That's the playbook. It's always with Trump. Deny, deny, deny. And unless you have me recorded saying this or an email or a text or even a handwritten note, none of those exist. That's a, that I can tell you, none of them exist because he's just too smart to put anything down. He acts like a mob boss, and it's exactly what, what he did here. And I believe that all of these other people are going to see, including Jeffrey Clark, they're all going to see indictments, Jared Kushner, Ivanka. And if anybody out there listening to this podcast thinks for a second that Donald won't throw Ivanka and Jared and, and uh, Don Jr. and Kimberly Gargoyle and Eric and Laura Trump under the bus, you're wrong. He will throw Melania under the bus before he goes to prison because that's just who he is. Donald Trump cares about one person and one person only, and that's himself. So he will, they will wordsmith every single word here under 18 U.S.C. 2384 to the point where he's going to be like, okay, you say that I conspired to overthrow? Show me. Show yeah, me. Yeah, and I think you're hitting on exactly where the, the key element is going to be that's going to be elusive, which is the agreement. They have to show that he agreed to use force. And I think that Garland is going to want sort of smoking gun kind of evidence uh, to charge Trump. Um, and that's what I was worried about. I'm glad we're having this conversation because I was like, hmm, I wonder what you know Trump could have possibly done beyond conversations that might, um, you know, prove that. But, you know, that that will be tricky. The, that's why I think like incitement, though, is stronger because, you know, incitement isn't just advocating the overthrow of the government. It's actually, you know, directing people to engage in insurrection and rebellion and then having them act on it, um, having the the immediate impact of those words, you know, go to go out and do it. And I think what do you think of that piece of it? I think it's a stronger argument, certainly, than uh, the, you know, seditious conspiracy claim. That's for sure. Once again, though, he will start to try to parse words. Um, it, it will be the exact same playbook that I believe he will put out there as it relates to the Fulton County, Georgia case with Brad Raffensperger. His comment will be, whoa, 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 you need 
to show intent. That my intent was for Brad Raffensperger to go make up and steal 11,780 votes. And so I believe I won. I've always said that I won. And I believe that it was stolen from me. So it's all about intent. I didn't intend to do anything that was illegal. I intended for him to go out and find me the votes that belonged to me because it was stolen from me. That's the problem. And I'll tell you, just to add one mix to it, everybody's talking about how they believe that the Georgia case is going to be the one that puts the orange-crusted, you know, Mussolini, the Mandarin Mussolini, you know, um, behind bars. No, no. And I always believe that the strongest case against Donald Trump was the district attorney here in New York, Alvin Bragg's case, the Cyrus Vance originally started. Because... You want to talk about something that was signed? What document that was signed? Tax returns. And he has them all. They have them all. Cyrus Vance made sure of that. Mark Pomerantz, Carrie Dunn made sure of that. And they've gone through it. And they knew exactly what they had. And why they gave up the strongest of all of the cases. The one thing that you cannot turn around and say your signature is not on is the tax returns. And remember, that's how they got... um, you know, that's how they've gotten mobsters all through, you know, all throughout Al Capone, you know, notorious. They couldn't get him for murder, racketeering, extortion, and so on. Instead, they got him for tax evasion. And does anybody really care what's the reason that Donald is behind bars? Oh, my God, we only got him for tax evasion. Who gives a shit? As long as he's away and out of all of our hair and stop destroying democracy. You know, I mean, that's to me, the end result, because he broke the law in that area. And it's a much easier case for them to prove, my opinion. Yeah, and I see that point. I do think that there is an important symbolic and public accountability for January 6th, that he be held accountable for specifically what happened that day um, and beyond just, just going to jail. I'll add, Michael, that Incitement to insurrection and rebellion carries as its penalty an explicit prohibition from holding public office, which is another reason why I think it. I'm very hopeful that DOJ will pursue it. Um, I think the intent, this is why I think Hutchinson's testimony was so explosive yesterday, because I think she really went to intent. You have plausible deniability if you're not aware that your mob is armed and you're like, you know, and he says, go march peacefully, he can say, look, I just wanted them to be peaceful and go to the, you know, I can't control what they did. But there's three key things that came out yesterday that I think really blow his plausible deniability out of the water. The first is he knew they were armed and he wanted them to, he wanted to get rid of the magnetometers. He didn't want those weapons to be taken away. He knew they were armed. He wanted them to stay armed. Um, the second one is, he says, I know they aren't here to hurt me. So he knows they're armed with like flagpoles with spears on them and AR-15s, but they're not there to hurt him. I mean, they're, they're clearly there to fight somebody, right? Uh, right. And so he sends them to Congress knowing this. And the third piece is he wanted to go join them. That was the crazy part. He knew that they had overrun the Capitol, that this armed mob, you know, and he wanted to go and be in the mix and lead them. 
So here's I the thing, Asha. Now, now, so let me give you the Trump defense that's going to go on here. Okay. If these people were carrying firearms, would I go and spend time with them? Right? They're saying, oh, um, he didn't mind because they're not there to hurt him. And so on. How, he'll say, how did I know that? Show me an order that says that, you know, get rid of the, um, you know, the mags, get rid of, you know, the, allow these people. The problem is, again, it goes right back to his argument is going to be everything that Cassidy turned around and said is nothing but hearsay, an out-of-court statement offered to prove the truth of the matter asserted therein, and it should carry no legal weight and no legal argument. Unless there's a documentary evidence that can be produced that shows that I said, get rid of all the mags and let these people with their firearms and, and their billy clubs and their, their bats and batons and so on, bear spray, handcuffs, etc., um, let them all in. Uh, that sounds like Mark Meadows to me. They, you know? he, they can get this, the law enforcement or and Secret Service who came and told him that and the ones that he ordered to take. I mean, I do think like the the he said, she said can only go so far unless you have multiple people, in, especially people like law enforcement who, you know, have a lot of credibility in front of a jury corroborating that. Yeah. Remember, you still have to get the charge, you know, through. That's the whole thing. Just, and Trump I'm is very, and Trump is very, I, I understand <laughs> that. And Trump is very good at filing motions to dismiss, believe me, yeah. you know, and they will file them forever and ever and ever. Um, but the one thing that you said that I'm going to just take a little push on, there's a big difference between holding him legally accountable for the January 6th insurrection and then holding him in the court of public opinion, which mm -hmm. that's what Cassidy did. And that's yeah. the that's the thank you that we have to give to this to this young person who is now going to be the recipient of horrific and hellacious, um, you know, emails and comments and uh, letters and threats and so on. Trust me, I know I got them. Uh, I got them the second that I testified all the way through the time I was still in Otisville and still to this day where people talk about skinning me alive and wearing my skin as a jacket or, you know, the fact that it's too bad my family didn't all die in the gas chambers. I mean, you get these horrific, you know, horrific um, Trump supporters that have no compunction with saying the most vile and disgraceful thing. But I want to move on for a second with you. Pat Cipollone, all right? His name came up a lot. And after Hutchinson's testimony, does he come forward now or just let the committee infer, you know, where he was and what he was doing on or around the 6th? Is it too late for him now to come forward? And while we're talking about Cipollone, let's also throw in there Mark Meadows, right? In your opinion, is it loyalty to Trump or what is it that's keeping them from testifying? Scavino, the same thing. I mean, isn't it just a matter of time now before the indictments start to come down and then they're going to be incentivized to speak? Cipollone is really interesting because he has the capacity to really corroborate and add to Hutchinson te Hutchinson's testimony. I suspect what he's afraid of is his own criminal exposure. And I'm glad that you... You know, because he was there witnessing basically a crime in action. Like he knew that they were what they were doing was 
a conspiracy to defraud the United States and a conspiracy to obstruct Congress. The day of the rally, he knew that if they marched on the Capitol, that that was going to implicate potentially these other crimes that we've talked about that that use force. So, you know, and he's a lawyer, like he can't just sit by and watch and let it happen and, you know, help cover it up, which is, you know, not testifying, he's sort of doing. Um, So I think, you know, the the temptation for the committee is going to be perhaps to give him some limited immunity to testify. And just on this point, I think you highlight a really important distinction, Michael, between um, legal liability and public accountability. And those two things, by the way, can be in conflict. And we have seen that before. We saw it in Iran-Contra where, you know, the committee decide or the Tower Commission um, decided that holding these people accountable to the public, you know, for their secrecy and lies and deception was actually the more important goal. And in the end, they gave immunity and it ended up compromising the criminal prosecutions. Oliver North's conviction got thrown out, I believe, a few others. So that's where I think we are. I don't think I think Meadows, his calculation is loyalty Um, He wants to remain in the good graces of MAGA world because I assume he's profiting from the grift, maybe he's he's whatever it is. I think he sees more pluses to staying in Trump's good graces than than uh, going against it. Um, And I just don't see the committee offering him any kind of immunity unless he's got smoking gun on Trump and wants to negotiate it uh, because you know, he's one of the key players. Like, why would they, you know, I, I think if, if anyone besides Trump deserves to go to jail, it's Eastman and it's Meadows. Uh, so that's my take on it. What do you think? I agree with you. I think all I think all of them will turn around and point the finger, as everybody else has done at Trump, and say, this was done at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. What would Mark Meadows, Pat Cipollone, Tony Ornato, what, what benefit would they get with 17 days left before the inauguration of Joe Biden? What benefit would they get to be involved in the creation of an insurrection, right, other than Donald Trump staying in power and clearly keeping them on in the position that they were in and hopefully positions that they would stay in for life, like with Kim Jong-un so long as he is the supreme leader. Now, Tony Ornato is another interesting figure that she talked about. And here's another part of the Trump playbook. The first thing that's now come out is that Cassidy's comments about Donald Trump lunging at the Secret Service agent, right, grabbing a hold of the steering wheel. According to Fox News, Newsmax, OAN, because those are the only places I've seen it so far, um, someone close to Ornato uh, stated that he was shocked when he was watching Cassidy make those allegations during the hearing. And that it's just not accurate. This poses a problem because, of course, what they're doing is they're trying to establish that this specific statement by Cassidy was a major allegation that she made to the committee. 
I'm not so sure. She said she wasn't in the SUV. All right. This is what allegedly Tony uh, Ornato told her. And that I believe Meadows was in the room as well is how she described it. Chances are they are both going to lie. And they're going to say it's just not true. And Trump's counsel will use this allegation and the alleged inaccuracy of it in order to disqualify every other statement that she made. If this one is wrong, how do you have any faith? She's a liar, right? Lion Ted, you know, uh, crooked lie, you know, crooked liar Cohen, you know. That's Donald's playbook, right? Uh, the, the three D's, right? Distance, which is what he's doing from her. He never knew her. He barely knew her, right? Denigrate her, which is what he's doing, calling her, you know, a liar and all these other things. And then, you know, he's going to, um, you know, he's just going to go to deflect and say, this has nothing to do with me. She now, and I heard this, um, I don't, I'm trying to find it, that, Allegedly, she's getting a $10 million book deal. So he's then going to deflect upon that as the basis for her lying to Congress, to which he'll then claim that she should be held in contempt under a 1001 violation. That's the Trump playbook. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I am. I think it's been. What have you seen? Because you were you were going through more channels. I was sort of heartened that the media wasn't totally running. I mean, they were covering it, but they didn't let it hijack the news cycle in terms of this one, you know, statement that's been challenged. Um, You know, I will say this, that Tony Ornato has his own credibility problems. Um, He was not employed, like he was not a part of the Secret Service uh, officially when that happened. He was on leave from the Secret Service in order to take a political appointment as the deputy chief of staff in the White House. He was a political appointee. And this is someone who previously reportedly helped Trump arrange that Lafayette Square photo op. Do you remember with the Bible? I sure do. So this is somebody who is, you know, completely in the MAGA camp and I think has his own self-interest involved in terms of saying that what Hutchinson said is not true. By contrast... What you just said, Michael, about what she is in for, she's 25 years old. What did she have to gain by doing this, by offering this testimony? She, and, and how much does she have to lose? I would say she has a lot to lose. She's oh, I agree. risking her personal safety. I can't think of like an upside for her that would be self-interested. And for as someone who, you know, is sitting here as a former agent, as, you know, a American citizen trying to assess credibility, I think she's very credible. And so, you know, in the court of public opinion, I don't know that Tony Ord. Oh, and by the way, this is really interesting. (laughs) I love that, you know, they claim that her testimony is all hearsay. But meanwhile, they're going to rely on an anonymous source close to Tony Ornato, who's said, who you know, not even, why doesn't Tony Ornato come out and say, and challenge it. Why doesn't he go under oath and come and, and testify to it? Let's do it. Bring it. Bring it. And let's challenge your credibility in front of uh, the public. Impeach him as a witness. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't. I know exactly what you're saying. But you're never going to get them in front of a, um, a congressional panel under oath because 
They don't even remember the truth. That's the problem when you work with and for Donald Trump. There's so much bullshit that gets thrown around, so many lies that get spewed that you don't even know anymore what the truth is. And that's always, of course, a big problem. But let me ask you this as well. What's happening at the FBI? They put out a statement in August of last year that said that they found little evidence that January 6th was a coordinated effort. Now, that's not the case now. We know that for a fact, not so much because of Cassidy, but also because of the emails, text, voice messages, and so on, as well as the videotapes. Do you have any insight into their approach to investigating the insurrection? I don't, Michael, and I have a lot of questions. And, you know, listen, I... I try to give the FBI the benefit of the doubt. I think that, you know, it is made up of men and women who really want to do their jobs to the best of their ability. But this whole January 6th thing from beginning to end has left a lot of holes for me that are not answered. Beginning with, you know, all of part of the testimony yesterday were a lot of intelligence notices and bulletins that were coming out about the possibility of violence on January 6th. Um, including from the Secret Service. And, and the point of giving this in the testimony yesterday was Hutchinson was going to testify that Meadows mm-hmm. and Trump were aware of this. But my question was, then clearly the FBI would have been aware of it. And where were they? Like, why were they not out, you know, canvassing, combing, making sure that this didn't happen beforehand? On the day of, afterwards, at the press conference, Christopher Wade was nowhere to be sound, found. Then we have statements like this that you just mentioned last August, which, you know, clearly are not the case because of the things you mentioned. Also, they've now charged the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers with seditious conspiracy, which is by definition a planned, you know, event. Um, And also, why weren't why wasn't anyone around arresting these people who had AR-15s and other banned weapons you know, in in Washington, D.C.? Like, I don't I don't really understand anything about the law enforcement understand meaning I can't make sense of it um, uh, uh, that was happening that day. So I don't know uh, what to tell you about how the FBI is approaching this. Look, so you may remember I told you I was in the process of writing a book, and I'm very close to being finished with it. Uh, I'll send it off to legal to make sure that everything is compliant, but it's called the Department of Injustice. And there is a lot about the FBI. Look, I have nothing but the utmost of respect for law enforcement, FBI, um, our intelligence agencies, and so on. However, you may remember, I think the movie was called like Stand By Me uh, with Crazy Joe, uh, who was the headmaster at a school up in the Bronx, he used to walk around with a baseball bat. And there was a statement that was in that movie that goes, you know, what happens when you have one bad apple? How about a, a bunch, right, uh, a, a half a dozen, a bunch of spoiled apples, rotten to the fucking core? And I believe that the upper echelon of the FBI is really corrupted. I think they're corrupted by the power, by the office, and by those that are in charge of them, their superiors, meaning the attorney general, I'm referring now to Bill Barr, and of course, the chief executive himself, right, the lowlife Donald J. Trump. And I believe that they act in a way that is unconstitutional. It's illegal. You know, I have a lawsuit against the U.S. government right now, the DOJ and so on. But in it, I talk about, for example, my case. I talk about the fact they knew I've never been to Prague. They certainly, you know, um, had 
more than enough intelligence uh, that showed where I was, which was in Los Angeles. They sent people to go meet with the baseball coach at USC, who my son and I were meeting with. They spoke to dozens of people that, you know, uh, told them exactly where I was. Within 48 hours, they knew that I was in California and not in Prague and that I had never been to Prague. But yet they never came out and said anything. They allowed this to keep going and going. And they kept as part of the investigation. So I go into a whole deep dive into who was involved, what the theories that go in there, and I back it up with documents uh, and so on. Because the beautiful thing for me is that time seems to be revealing everything. Like when I turn around and I told the world that if Trump loses in 2020, there will never be a peaceful transfer of power. It's why I was there to testify. I testified to other things that he's a con man, right? He's a fraud. Um, he behaves like a mobster. Uh, I mean, take a look at some of the language that I used in, that, in my statement and in my responses to Congress, and you'll find that they're all accurate and they're true, right? Nevertheless, where was the FBI for that? So I don't expect much to come out of the FBI, to be very honest with you, as it relates to the January 6th. I think this is going to be left up, you know, to Merrick Garland and to this um, committee who they're now turning over all the documents, you know, supposedly well, to the know, DOJ. Remember that any investigation that Garland is doing is going to involve like, it's the FBI that's doing the actual investigation. So I suspect what is hap what is happening is that there's probably a detail to headquarters, I'm guessing, and that at least for, you know, the people in Trump's inner circle, that this would be a special investigative matter that's probably close hold with some very good agents trusted agents who can do, you know, the, the full investigation and they don't think that they're biased and all of this kind of stuff. So um, whatever, but, you know, I, I completely, you know, share your concerns about what the broader FBI, like what, like, here's another thing, Michael, like, you know, after 9-11, the FBI did an internal review of what failures happened leading, you know, that, mm -hmm. that led to 9-11. Is Christopher Ray conducting an internal review of their internal failures that leading up? Not that I'm aware of. No, not that I'm aware of. And no one has asked why. I mean, I know there's just so much, there's so many fish to fry and probably the FBI is like number, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 or something. But I do think that these are really important questions because it has to be an agency that is above reproach. It has to be an agency that people can trust. And when, you know, when it's not operating with full, you know, transparency that people believe that they are, you know, going to pursue every lead, um, I, I think that it really just undermines everybody's faith. And with justice in mind, you know, my father's always, you know, uh, has been saying actually a lot since all of this started occurring in my life that the, America is a country of laws without justice, and that justice is predicated upon who the individual is. Right now, Lady, you know this as well as I and others, Lady Justice wears a blindfold and is supposed to be fair and um, impartial. 
And one of the things that I discuss very heavily in the book is the fact that it's not. But let me ask you this question, because, you know, I know after I testified, as I stated, that the death threats that came, you know, against me, the uh, horrific emails, letters and so on. um, I mean, they're terrible. Should we worry about the safety of Cassidy Hutchinson and others who will come out and testify, considering all of the threats by these MAGA fanatics on behalf of their Fuhrer. It's out of control. I mean, you know, nobody can dispute the fact that Cassidy Hutchinson is brave, like really brave. But is there an apparatus to place, uh, you know, in place to keep people like her out of harm's way? Not that I know of. I mean, you know, for someone who has testified in court, you know, you know, from what like mob prosecutions and stuff, and they need to go into witness protection or something like that. But that's, you know, that's not the situation here. Like she's a test, she's a witness for a congressional committee. I understand that they got security for her, but I'm not sure what kind of security is. Is it, is it a private entity? I mean, she's, you know, I don't think that she's in any way eligible for something like, you know, an FBI detail or something like that. (laughs) You know, when I, when I was testifying before the house and so on, I had, um, I had security. Uh, I had uh, FBI security. Okay. From the moment I got out of my car to the time that I was brought up to the room, to the chamber, from the time that I finished the, and left the chamber and returned to my car. After that, I'm on my own. Oh, my God. <laughs> so so okay. they, they so protected me. They protected me while I was in front of Congress. That's just fantastic, right? And nobody ever called. The only one that actually called, God rest his soul, was Elijah Cummings, just to make sure, you know, that I was okay and so on. Just a really a fantastic guy. But let me then, let me move on and ask you this then. The Supreme Court seems to be rotting from the inside. And it's clearly become the Clarence Thomas show. And he's pounding a drum that's not just conservative, but it's seriously radical. He's written opinions seemed, you know, addled and unsound. I mean, there's no precedent for impeachment, but if not now, then when? I mean, for example, his wife's actions alone should have prompted a resignation, but apparently there's no honor or humility on the right side of the court. What do we do about it? I, yeah. I mean, this is one where I don't, I don't even know what to say. I mean... Asha, I brought you on because I need these answers. My listeners need these answers. Yeah, I mean, look, where do you even start with this? So Ginny Thomas, who's clearly a wackadoodle, um, you know, and that's not illegal. It's not illegal for Supreme Court justices to be married to wackadoodles, except that she was in communication with the White House and very involved with Stop the Steal. And basically, you know, a player that is involved, we don't know yet to what degree, um, in at least the the big lie. And, you know, she was definitely on board with this idea of trying to reverse the outcome of the 2020 election. There are issues from the investigation into that that are appearing, that have appeared in front of this court. And you'll remember that uh, one of the, I think it was the, the National Archives uh, case where Thomas is the only one who dissents. He doesn't want these communications to come out. And you can't help, I mean, I think everybody thinks, like, is there a self-interest here? 
And this kind of gets back to the FBI and our institutions. You know, preserving our democracy is not just about securing elections and, you know, voting rights. These are very important, obviously. But it's also about people's perception. Um, there's, a, there's a professor at Yale Law School named Tom Tyler, and he talks about the rule of law. And what he says about the rule of law is it's not enough that, you know, justice is served or laws are applied fairly. People have to believe that they are applied fairly. People have to believe that, you know, Lady Justice is, is blindfolded. When, when you start to, you know, have situations where, particularly with the administration of justice, whether it's on law enforcement side, you know, particular groups getting targeted, uh, you know, racially profiled, killed, when you have, you know, unequal access to justice or outcomes or prosecutorial decisions, when you have judges who seem like they are acting out of self-interest, you've now eroded the, the main pillar that is holding up democracy. You can, you can have all the voting rights in the world. You can have all the elections you want in the world. But if you don't have that faith in that, uh, in the rule of law, in addition to having, in fact, the rule of law, then you've lost it. And I think that that is, that, that is the most terrible thing right now about, about Thomas on the Supreme Court and the fact that he, he does not care about that. Because when, when judges recuse, they're doing it because, not because they're, they're admitting that there is a conflict of interest. They're doing it because they may create an appearance of a conflict of interest. And the fact that he doesn't have the integrity to do that, to me, is just incredibly disturbing. Well, it also justifies something that I've been saying forever, that I don't believe anybody should have a job for life. You know, I believe that people should be able to be removed, whether it's federal court judges for judicial, um, you know, abuse or Supreme Court judge who has a wife that's part of the plot to overthrow our government. Yeah, I think that's a problem being in bed next to a woman who wants to throw overthrow the government and your husband happens to be one of nine on the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's a real problem. And the fact that... And the fact that there's nothing that it appears that can be done. I mean, I don't I don't understand. Rest assured, if Trump was in office and again, because he doesn't respect the office, he didn't respect the Constitution or rule of law. I, he, I, I could see him nominating, you know, five more, you know, judges right now or six more judges, whatever, uh, to keep it odd. Um, I could see him nominating them and putting them on and saying, you know what, fuck you, take me to court, right? But they're going to be, they're going to be um, Supreme Court judges. I mean, I was shocked he didn't do more, to be honest with you. But I want, let me ask you this then for, further. I know that you've written about Kavanaugh. Is there any sense in opening his case up again? Do you think that there's enough to go on within which to remove him? Again, they all lied, Amy Coney Barrett lied to the members of the um, of the of the panel um, during the uh, what you call it the um, the hearings. Um, so did Brett Kavanaugh, and so did Gorsuch. Each and every one of them responded that they believe in stare decisis. That Roe v. Wade is law of the land. It's been that way for fifty years. Everybody walked away from you know, the hearing, feeling good that these people were going to be what they're supposed to be, 
which is apolitical, independent, and they're supposed to think about the will of the people, not a party, not the Federalist Society, not the Southern White Christian Coalition, evangelicals, and so on, but the will of the people. They didn't do that. They lied. Why are they not removed? Well, I watched the clips of their testimony after the Dobbs decision came down, and I would, you know, Michael, go back and watch those clips with your lawyer hat on, because what I noticed was now in retrospect, they were very careful with their words. And here's what they said. Roe versus Wade is a law of the land. True. Uh, that uh, Casey established, you know, precedent on precedent. True. Mm -hmm. And that there are factors that Casey applied uh, in determining whether or not to overturn precedent, stare decisis, and that they would, I remember, I think it was Amy Coney Barrett who said this, that I will faithfully apply those factors, which people kind of took to say, I will faithfully observe Casey. But those factors are actually, it's like criteria. It's like a five-pronged test. And in Dobbs, they go through the five prongs and they're like, okay, we've applied the five factors and we find that you know, we don't need to keep this precedent. We can precedent. We can throw it out the window. So it's it's kind. It's very wily. I think if you listen to them, I don't know that they lied. And I also think like I don't know that that could be ever really you know used as out and out perjury. You know what's really said? If I was a member of Congress, and I had the ability to ask questions. The first question I would have asked, under any circumstance, would you overturn Roe v. Wade? Just ask that straight question. Under any circumstance, stare decisis, decided 50 years ago, do you think it should be it codified? I think there were versions of that question that were asked, and then they would. De- they said, "We, I don't want to, uh, they would decline to answer because it could be a matter that comes before the court. That's their out. That's their out to not answer that question. It's just a, you know, like the, the, the Supreme Court confirmation hearings at this point are just like a kabuki dance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I share your frustration and I, I, you and I are on the same page. I'm just saying like they, I think they're so well groomed and rehearsed in exactly how yep. to answer yeah. these questions in a way that they're airtight. You know, because for me, my biggest complaint with the whole thing. If you are of the mindset that your faith does not allow you to have an abortion, God bless you. I love people of faith, right? And I'm friendly with so many evangelicals. I don't agree with them on that point, but we don't talk about it. You be you and let me be me. Why should your religion interfere with my religion? or my belief system, or if the fact, what if I'm atheist, right, or agnostic, right, and it's my decision, you do you, don't have, a, don't have an abortion, I'm great with that, go have 15 children, God bless you, the more the merrier, but why should your belief system ever impede upon somebody else's, and that's the part that I just find so fundamentally flawed, when it comes to this decision by Alito and so on. And, you know, um, it's so, so on par with the um, with Gilead and the Handmaid's Tale. And it's it's scary because what's next? LGBTQ rights? 
black, you know, civil rights? I mean, well, what's, I mean, what's going to be same-sex marriage, right? Are they going to go back and they're going to repeal that? Who knows what they're going to do? But can I just touch again on the abortion ban? Because yep. the abortion ban in so many states has completely thrown courts and state legislatures into chaos. And that's absolutely understandable. But why weren't the Democrats ready with talking points and actionable measures that people like us could be using now as we go on television, as we talk to the press and so on? Because I can't say it often enough. We don't have any decent messaging in the in the Democratic Party. But what what's angering and should be angering to everyone listening here is we've had months to prepare for this abortion ban. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi answers with a poem. So I think that Democrats, we might have discussed this last time, Michael, I don't think they understand that this is information warfare. And Republicans are really good at this. They have a well-oiled propaganda information warfare machine, and they get everybody on the same page with the exact same message. And they also mean, by the way, mobilize their base by giving them very, very specific actions and goals that they want to achieve. For the last 30 years, what have they said? We want to appoint more conservative justices on the Supreme Court so that we can overturn Roe versus Wade. That's like, that's a plan. You know what I mean? And if you want, if that's what you believe in, you're going to get on board and you're going to vote every time, single issue voter, to make that happen. I mean, I don't know of any similar kind of, you know, 20-year action plan that has been communicated to Democratic voters. I mean, there's there's lofty, you know, social justice goals and economic goals, and those are really policy goals. But there's no, like, for the voter, and I think AOC had a um, tweet to this effect. She said, what specifically are we going to do? Like, what is the plan? Like, articulate it, create the actual action plan, and put it out there. And I don't think there is one. I don't, I mean, have you heard of any, like, specific action? That's no, what you're asking me, right? No, and I've been, and I've been very critical of Jamie Harrison, you know, who leads the DNC. Where is the messaging? Where is the outrage? Where is the ability to garner more Democratic votes as a result of this ridiculous Supreme Court decision? In fact, in fact, I'll tell you what I did here. Over the weekend, the GOP claims that they registered over a million new voters. I mean, that just makes me scratch my head and say, what the fuck are we doing? A million new voters. I mean, what's the holdup here? Jamie, if you're listening, I hope that you are. Call me. Call Asha. Call Midas Touch. Call Audio Up. Call any one of us. Call David Hogg. Call a million different people. Right. And we will tell you the message that you need because we keep screaming it from the rooftops, but nobody's listening. Now, I know that there's protests. They go out there and thank God for the protest people. But it's not going to change the hearts and minds of anyone. Right. How do we advise folks when they ask us, what can we do when the when the DNC doesn't even have a clear message for them to go off of? Yeah, I, I... I don't have an answer to that, but I want to piggyback on something that you said earlier, which is, you know, you said, what other what's next? What other rights are next? Like I said, this is the way that they mobilize their base. 
And now that they've achieved the goal, like they got to come up with something to get people riled up, right? I mean, because otherwise it's like, then they're going to be like, okay, we overturned Roe versus Wade, we're going to stay home. And this kind of gets to Clarence Thomas's concurrence where he says, here's what's next on the chopping block. (laughs) We need to eliminate substantive due process, which are basically actual rights that have been read into, you know, the 14th Amendment, Um, you know, as part of the due process clause, things like privacy, additional privacy rights, like, you know, contraception, uh, private consensual sex. He also makes the leap to Obergfell, which is same-sex marriage, which isn't even a privacy case. That was an equal protection case. So, you know, he wants to extend what happened in Dobbs, which was ostensibly about restricting this definition of privacy, to all of these other contexts. And I guarantee you that these are this is going to become the new culture war agenda, uh, and they're already doing it with LGBT and, and trans rights. Like that's how they're getting, that's how they got, I'm sure that's how they got, uh, they said, we did this with Roe. This is what we can do now with all these other things. Sign up to vote. That's what they did. Yep, it's exactly. But I just want to say to you here in New York, we don't have privacy, uh, sexual, you know, actions, rights, especially considering like the people that live across from me uh, and so on. They just, um, they just go at it with their window shades open all the time. So there is no, there is no privacy right to that. I just want to, I just want to draw the distinction for you. All right. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, sometimes these people are out of control. It's great. You're sitting there with a bunch of friends in your dining room and you're looking at your window and you're like, uh, yeah, hello. You know, maybe shut your curtains. So look, <laughs> getting back to seriousness, because this is really a serious matter here, right? I'm feeling more and more like it's time for, and, and you know, you, you ask a great question, which is like, um, what can we do? What's the message that I would tell Jamie to start concentrating on and so on? Here's the answer. Go after the young voters. I've now had three or four young people on this podcast talking about it's time for younger people to start taking leadership roles because the old white guy in the three branches of government, right? It hasn't risen, you know, to the moment and they certainly haven't managed to save our basic rights. Is it time to start looking for a younger presidential candidate in 2024 and sort of let Biden be the bridge that he claimed he wanted to be. I mean, in all fairness, he would be the oldest president at the time. And I have no issue with him as a person. He is truly an empathetic and decent human being. But the one thing that you cannot escape is your age. All right. And the world has changed from technology to the speed to which things move, right? I mean, they move in a Google second. If the answer is yes, if so, then who and how? So the answer is yes, 100%. And I'm with you. Biden seems like a great dude, you know? I mean, he's, he's and he's served his country and, and done a good job. But my God, we have to have somebody young and energizing. I mean, I remember... And Michael, we're the same age, and I don't know how you felt at the time, but I remember being so excited about Bill Clinton. And I, when he ran for president in 92, he was young. How old was he? He was like 42? Yeah, maybe? something like that. Yeah. Very young, you know. And I think just like 
just that and his, you know, his vision and his ability to like communicate, like all of it just got people excited. Um, same thing with Obama. I think there are a lot of people who got that same sense of energy with Obama. I just don't see how Biden can run again. I mean, am I the only one who feels this way? I thought he said he wasn't going to. Mm, that's not what I. That's not what I've heard. In fact, I mean, I thought you may when have he heard. Heard, I thought yeah, when he may have heard. No, no, no. Well, no, no. When you know, um, when Kamala Harris was just on television talking about that, you know, he's going to run and she's going to be again his running mate. You know, I think it's going to be a death now. Um, and but. I guess to your second question, I don't know that I have an answer on the who. Who do you think? Michael Cohen. Uh, by the way, I think he was 46 yeah. years old when he um, uh, became 46. president. Yeah. And so on. Honestly, I think we need a younger, more active individual within which to take. The country's in a really bad place, and I think it's going to take... Um, someone from the younger generation to really take control over what's going on because they fully understand all of the various issues that right now, that social, political, that are taking place in our country. And I think without them, I do really believe that we're doomed. But you know, Asha, one of the things I told you as we were talking offline, the hour goes by really quickly. So I have one last, I have one last question for you. Okay. Now you, you teach at Yale at Yale Law School. And apparently, there's some of the best and brightest um, in your courses. What do you feel they're hoping to do with their legal work? Do these young people think the country is on its way to substantial change? And do they get that we're headed towards authoritarianism? Or are they thinking that everything will be fine? You know, let's just get past Trumpism. You know, are most of your students still in favor of tolerance and civil rights? Because every now and then, while I was watching these um, abortion rallies, you see really swaths of, of young women that are pro-life. So I'm kind of curious, at Yale, what are you seeing? What are you hearing from your students? Yeah, well, you know, I think Yale uh, tends to lean liberal, right? Um, and I think that these students, they're, it's a, they're a unique generation. I think on the one hand, they are very civically, you know, motivated and engaged. You know, they're really interested in causes bigger than themselves. I think that they want to make an impact. I think that they are aspiring to careers where they can make an impact. I do feel like they may not fully appreciate how dire the situation is right now. Mm -hmm. In other words, they're kind of focused on like specific issues that they care about. And I'm not sure that they see the big picture. And I don't think that, you know, they just haven't been on earth long enough. Like they don't see how much America really is in decline, democratically speaking. Um, and that worries me because I don't know that, for example, they appreciate the urgency of having to save democracy with the urgency, you know, as they do the urgency of like reversing climate change. Like they're all about that. They know that and that's great. Um, but I don't know that it has yet sunk in for them that their children may be living in a completely different world. Yeah, it's really 
unbelievable. Um, I hate ending on that note, but anyway. But listen, it's it's <laughs> it's a it's a terrible scenario that this country is in right now, and it's why I'm constantly trying to motivate the Gen Z, the Gen X, why um, you know students and young people, so that they fully understand just how close we were to losing our democracy under Trumpism, under these, these individuals that have now taken on his persona, which is the ugliest persona that you could possibly have. I cannot imagine that you have groups at Yale that are racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic. Those are the traits that Donald Trump has demonstrated during his administration. And you see the same fundamentally flawed character traits in so many of these other individuals, whether it's Ron DeSantis or it's Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, that fool, right? Or, you know, Josh Hawley, Matt Gates, Ted Cruz. I mean, these are, the, these are who they are. And somewhere, my hope is that as more and more people start listening, you know, we're over like 28 million downloads already. You know, my hope is that, you know, more and more younger people start tuning in and joining this mea culpa movement because time's running out. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's their future. So, Asha, always great to see you. Always thank great you. to get your opinions on this stuff. Um, I thank you. And obviously, I look forward to seeing you very, very soon. Same here. Thanks, Asha. And now for today's mea culpa. Last week, the Supreme Court's dreaded ruling on abortion blew the lid off a simmering pot, and we now know without a doubt that this ugly and unnecessary ban will impact all of us negatively. But I want to thank our LGBTQ plus friends and family who have stepped in to join the fight for reproductive rights. It's not just straight women who become pregnant. Parents are not just men and women anymore. Family in America is as diverse as the colors in a rainbow flag. And like women, intersectional folks should have the right to manage their own bodies and their own health care. Period. Full stop. When we talk about equal rights and how to protect them from the religious zealots and the immoral majority, we can all learn a lot from the gay rights movement. There are few movements in America that have been as successful at fundraising, mobilizing, and raising awareness as the gay rights movement. The Stonewall riots 50 years ago gave birth to the movement and it took decades to reach marriage equality. But it was the AIDS crisis and its human toll that really accelerated the cause. During the epidemic, while gay men were dying, our government was denying them health care and calling the disease gay cancer, though no segment of the population was spared. Doctors and activists worked together to educate and fight back against prejudice that was costing people their lives. And eventually, something like a cure was found, and now thanks to sustained activism and advances in compassionate health care, HIV and AIDS is no longer a death sentence. The thing about the movement that strikes me the most is they just don't quit. Back in the day, ACT UP took the major cities by storm and staged protests and performances that you may not have agreed with, but that you'd seriously never forget. 
and out of tragedy and the necessity for survival came a galvanized community of proud queer Americans and their allies. It wasn't easy and it isn't over, but the movement remains active in its own defense and defiant of intolerance. This Pride Month has been a mixed bag for the movement. While Boy Scouts marched in various pride parades around the country, laws are going on the books that negate the rights of trans and non-binary youth and adults. I'm your average privileged white guy. There's a lot I don't know or understand about trans and non-binary people, but I'm open to learn and compassionate of their struggles. When that fucking bully Ron DeSantis spouts shit like don't say gay and Disney princesses are corrupting your kids, I consider it hate speech. And not just a slur against gay people, but all people with half a heart and a brain in their head. When Clarence Thomas says he's not done stripping away our rights, believe him. I mean, seriously, folks, believe him. And know that they're coming for gay rights next. Let's say we work together to preserve the rights and identities of all Americans. So let's organize, demonstrate, fundraise, and advance our culture together, rather than simply accept the rollback on our rights that would send us back to Stonewall. As the old saying goes, together we stand, divided we fall. This is America, folks. Together, we are gay, we are straight, and everything in between. And let's decide now that we'll accept nothing less than total equality for all of us. So happy Pride, folks, and thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.